Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Welcome to the Delighted Customers Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Slayton, and I'm so glad you're here. I empower leaders to turn indifferent customers into loyal fans. I talk to guests with a wide range of expertise who share meaningful insights and wisdom. We give you practical tips and proven frameworks and share ways to help you delight your customers. My guest on today's show is Richard Owen, and Richard has a singular focus that is to deliver financial value through customers. He was the CEO of Satmetrics, if you remember them. He worked closely with Fred Reicheld and Rob Markey to launch Net Promoter System, and now he's innovating again through his new company, OCX Cognition. He's the CEO, and he promises to change the game when it comes to customer experience management. And in today's show, we talk about the difference between AI, machine learning, and neurolinguistic programming, how data can help companies improve their customer experience through the use of AI, and the evolution of customer research and why AI is a game changer and why CX practitioners shouldn't be afraid of it at all. Let's dive right in. Well, I am so excited to have my guest, Richard Owen from OCX Cognition on the show today. Richard is one of the best known thought leaders in the customer experience industry. And he was the CEO of Satmetrics. Those of you who have been in the industry a while are familiar with that name. His team led the development of the Net Promoter Score methodology along with Fred Reicheld which created the most widely used approach to measuring customer experience in the world. And then together with Dr. Laura Brooks, he co-authored Answering the Ultimate Question, which quickly became the how-to guide for NPS practitioners. And it was uh, those of us back then when it came out were thirsty for uh, sources of information on how to apply the knowledge that came out of the earlier writings. So I would I would add the how-to guide for MPS practitioners. I would add the how-to guide for CX practitioners in general um, because it really extended beyond just NPS. So with that, let me introduce my guest, Richard. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. Thanks very much for the, especially for the generous introduction. 
Yes. And um, so I'm so excited to talk to you and, and, and honored. Um, we all came to the world of customer experience, customer experience management from different paths. Um, what was your, you know, I shared a little bit of your background, but what was your path? So not, not through the, the customer experience industry, but through, through line management. So back in the 1990s, I was a general manager with Dell Computer Corporation. I, and at, at one point I was running uh, one of Dell's biggest businesses in Asia uh, out of Tokyo. And we'd always had this theory at Dell that what really differentiated the company at the end of the day was customer experience. And the company, which was odd for a manufacturer, but if you're selling a product that's, let's face it, fairly generic, uh, you have to have something that was differential. And Dell was, was very committed to this idea. And they put in place a series of executive compensation variables that attempted to sort of capture the essence of what customer experience meant to Dell. And it was six core metrics and it ranged from logistics performance to early life quality to technical support. And everybody, including myself, above a certain level in the company was bonused on this. So we all had drummed into us the idea that the customer experience was highly quantifiable, was important, was a differentiation. And a lot of what I dealt with running a business in Japan was the unique quirks of, of life in Japan and what customer experience meant to the Japanese, which was in many instances quite different than to the Americans. Um, so I became very interested in it then. And then in, in 2000, uh, I was running a, a, a software company in the mobile enterprise space. We'd just, just taken that public. And we decided that customer experience was one of the true potential differentiators in software. And we were looking at companies that were really pushing the envelope on that. And one of them was Siebel Systems. Um, and ironically, Satmetrics was really um, accelerated by a decision by Siebel Systems, not just to buy the product, but also for Tom Siebel to invest in the company and Siebel to invest in the company. So Satmetrics, when I joined, was actually in some ways a product of that initiative at Siebel. So I'd, I'd really got interested in this idea of quantification and measurement from a line manager perspective, not from a sort of CX analyst or researcher perspective. Uh, and I've kind of kept that point of view ever since. You know, I always start with, you know, my job number one is I'm a general manager. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm running businesses. My, my second job is how do I, what, you know, what's the best practice for CX within those businesses? Yeah. And, um, and so for CX leaders, most CX leaders, I'm fairly confident, did not come from the world of artificial intelligence. Um, so we're going we're gonna to spend some time exploring what OCX cognition does and in this world of, of how we can apply artificial intelligence to help customer experience management wherever, wherever we're doing that from. But before we do... Um, not everybody in the audience is in the CX space. We could have people listening who are, you mentioned general managers who could be, um, you know, leading banks, leading insurance companies, leading wealth management companies and, and anything in between. And so my question to you is you, you wrote this second book. So I'll, I'll lay it out. So net promoter score, if you're not familiar with it is, is the most probably still the most popular loyalty metric, customer loyalty metric and way to measure um, the, the loyalty of customers that's most commonly used in some cases reported at the board level. 
Um, some companies reported in their earnings reports and so forth. Um, and it simply is the ultimate question. That's the name of the first book. The ultimate question, which is how likely are you to recommend a friend or colleague um, to whatever your business is? And then the, the follow-up question, of course, is what was the reason for your score? Right. And so the original book was written and um, and then I think there was a 2.0 book. Um, and but then you wrote answering the ultimate question, I guess, more of an application. What white space existed for you to write that book? Well, I think that the the let, let's go back to the start of what made Net Promoter, I think, an interesting idea. And I think that when you think about it, Net Promoter score is predominantly a mechanism for sub-segmenting customers into three groups. And mm. you know we call those three groups promoter, promoters, passives, and detractors. But to all intents and purposes, there's simply three groups that have radically different economic performance. The first group, promoters, tends to generate disproportionate profits, tends to contribute very directly to future growth, often through word of mouth, but also through cross-sell, upsell a product. The second group that we've sort of named passives don't typically generate as much profit, don't typically uh, have as much growth potential, and typically will switch vendors if presented with a more attractive offer. They're very unsticky. And then this third group, detractors, usually have a negative lifetime value for the company. In fact, they're a group of customers that probably cost you more to serve than you make in profit if, if you can get your head around the math. So... The, the insight from NPS was that if we can segment customers cleanly into these three groups, then companies that have a lot more of group one are clearly in better health than companies have a lot of group three. Now, the mechanism at the time was surveying. It just so happened that there was a great way to do this by asking customers through surveys. But I want people to separate the metric which is useful from survey mechanisms, which is just one tool for gathering the metric. The reason so many executives glommed on to MPS as a metric was really two things. The first was there was extremely good empirical data work done by Dr. Laura Brooks and Fred Reichelt um, to demonstrate linkage between performance around MPS and industry-level performance, largely B2C data, largely from the last part of the 1990s, early in the 2000s. But across multiple industries, there was a good linkage. So executives could say, any metric I want, I need to have confidence, has some economic corresponding positive outcome. And that was what MPS gave them. The second thing was it was a very simple concept to communicate. If I'm going to create accountability and I'm going to tell 10,000 employees around this idea that we're going to measure, then what I can't do is say, and the way we're going to measure it is an index of 10 different questions weighted in a specific formula, and it's going to generate a scale of 0 to 100, and you're going to get your bonus plan paid on it. And people are just going to say, okay, that's roulette. At the end of the year, I'll see what comes out of it. Whereas describing customers as these three groups, promoted passive practice, everyone could get their head around it. So I think those two things made it very popular. But beyond that, nobody really knew what it meant to implement it. And the the, even within the old survey universe that we used to exist within, there were a lot of questions about how to implement it. Well, do you implement it once a year, twice a year? Do you ask that question at the end of a transactional event, like a contact center call? The answer, by the way, is no, never. Do you, um, do you measure it on 
uh, across the entire customer base as a census? How do you handle sampling? And so a lot of the practical things that people were running into, hmm. I just don't think there were well-developed answers for. And so what we set out to do was uh, create a body of knowledge as to what best practice was, which we did with the book. And then we created the certification product and the certification product was you know, massively successful. So it was a joint venture with Fred when it was created. And it went on to about 6,000 companies got involved in certifying people as net promoter uh, MPS professionals, by far and away the biggest training program of its kind um, by, by a country mile, and still lives on and still companies continue to get certified, translated to Japanese, rolled out around the world. Um, and it's basically the same body of knowledge but Mark is 2008 body of knowledge. Mm. And I'd say that today it is, it is long in the tooth in some very important ways that mm. we, need to, we need to probably address. And it's part of the reason OCX cognition exists is to sort of bring the universe that we created in 2008 up to 2022. Yeah. So, so I heard, I heard a few things. One is, um, there were there was it it worked at the time because there was really good empirical data, although that data existed mostly in the B2C space. And I do want to follow up on that conversation. It's also a little bit dated now. I, I wanted to piggyback. And then secondly, for its simplicity that people get their head around it. Um, there were, I, I remember the story of of Rob Markey at Bain talking about th- they had developed a pretty sophisticated way to measure, but that was a problem. It was so sophisticated. Nobody understood, you know, what was, what was in the recipe. Uh, and, and that raises all sorts of questions for credibility and you know, authority. And if you're tying it to my paycheck, uh, then we, we have a trust issue, right? Right. Right. <laughs> right. Well, so, and and, yeah. and you have to remember back, back then, you know, there were a lot of sort of closed box metrics. You had companies you know, whose business was going into large organizations saying, we'll design the perfect metric for you and it'll be proprietary, a black box, uh, which was a great business because once you started doing that, um, you know, black box was a great way to go. I mean, look, JD Powers built their entire business off black box metrics. Um, and, and I think that's a great business, but it's lousy, it's a lousy metric. Uh, and so I, I, I think that Simplicity does matter. And when I always say to people who are critical of MPS, they're usually critical more about the technique or the, or the surveying than they are about the actual metric, which is, mm. let's say, I think not, not without some justification. But they say, if you're going to come up with something better, then it has to be a lot better to justify the increase in complexity. If you're going to tell me you've invented this whiz-bang, you know, 10-point question 10 question uh, uh, model or 10 data point model that's way better than MPS at predicting growth, then, then my answer is to you, okay, it's gotta be massively better at predicting growth for me to deal with the additional complexity. And, and usually people fail that test. It, it just doesn't usually come out that way. Yeah, well, well, well said. And I'm, I'm one of those um, people way back, uh, I don't know, a decade ago that got certified in the SAT metrics program and the MPS certification. So just, just to uh, add, yeah, add some credibility to it. Um, And now, and so um, I was also one as a segue into this old AI piece. um, I was also one who lived 
you know, quarter in and quarter out using, uh, you know, like many people would be using a platform, voice of the customer platform to run surveys, to analyze the feedback from surveys, to create insights, to make recommendations to leadership and go through that whole cycle. Obviously having a closed feedback loop when we get customers who are, you know, unhappy or there's opportunities that arise. Um, so going through that, looking at the data, um, straining to figure out what stories to tell from that data. Um, and because, um, you know, quite often what you're measuring doesn't often doesn't change a whole lot. So, you, you, you know, leadership is like, okay, NPS went down four points. NPS went up four points. So what's the story? Um, so you've got to, you've often got to dig, but then there's this whole other thing that I know we're going to be talking about here, which is we used to we used to brag about the fact that we got a 13% response rate, um, and it wasn't as high for our commercial clients. So I want to talk. I want to just ask you a question re- relative to those two things because I know at 13% we were actually higher than a lot of our. I was in banking, so a lot of our banks in the same. Uh, mid mid size bank range, uh, thir- ended up being a thirteen billion dollar bank. So, but anywhere from seven to ten billion, thirteen billion, fifteen billion dollars, thirteen percent response rate was actually pretty good. As like one in one in more than eight customers who got a survey responded, a um, little bit less on the commercial side. So, you know that that does beg the. Well, I'll, I'll leave that for you. I'll leave that the the problem with the thirteen percent as we began to stop pounding our chests about how proud we were about the 13% and used it as a proxy for the other 87. The other piece is the commercial side, which was really, and this is true, I think for, well, I know it is for insurance, uh, maybe not so much for wealth management, but the the third, the other piece of commercial business was really where the bread and butter was made. That is really where the majority, the lion's share of the profits um, that contributed to the bottom line came from. And yet, we really didn't have great data because number one, the, the response rate was lower, but also we didn't have a comfort level about a confidence level about who was responding to the survey right. from that business. And you have multiple users. So I want, I want you to um, talk about, you know, how OCX and, and artificial intelligence can be used to, um, help CX practitioners and, and from, and in what, what, what are we talking about? Are we talking about a sea change from 1990 and 2003? Is it that much different? Yeah. So I, so I think it is a sea change, but let's, let's start with a few sort of definitional ideas here. So, the, you know, AI is such a catchy buzzword. Um, you know, we, we, we talk to, um, you know, our devices in the home and Alexa, which is an AI device, and we say, that's it, right? Um, and, and so I think that it's, you know, there are a lot of branches of artificial intelligence. The most commonly applied artificial intelligence tool uh, over the last 20 years has probably been natural language processing, which is a branch of AI. And so a lot of people say AI and they think NLP. Uh, machine learning is a different branch of AI, and we're mainly focused on machine learning. And so to be specific, that is the technology we're deploying. And machine learning, you know, is has within itself, uh, you know, a whole series of subsegments, supervised learning, et cetera. But what, what I think people need to understand about this is that, 
in some ways, we're really just talking about algorithms. We're just talking about math. And what's changed over the last 20 years is that there's a lot more data and there's a lot more processing power and there's a lot more prepackaged algorithmic tools that enable us to build applications that can process this data and gain insights from this data in ways that just weren't available to us you know, going back even 10 years ago. And so this, this step function in data and processing power has come together and that creates opportunity. Now, why does any of this matter for the CX space? So if you, if you roll back really far back in time, CX emerged out of research techniques that were built in the sort of 1960s with people walking around in clipboards and asking people questions. And then, of course, sampling mathematics said, if I get a what I think is a representative sample, I can extrapolate. So I get 5% of people to tell me something. And if I think it's a reasonably representative sample, first, first class in statistics you take, then you go, okay, I can extrapolate for the rest of the group. And that is generally a consumer research technique because it assumes homogeneity, that basically that sample is highly representative of the rest of the group. By the way, in B2B, that's almost never the case. So immediately this technique is sort of fundamentally flawed. We just didn't have anything better. Over the next 20, 30 years, what technology did was essentially it uh, concreted that cow path. It took the clipboard and it made it digital. So we, we moved to doing telephone surveys in the 80s. And in fact, one of my first jobs when I was working for Regis McKenna years and years ago was picking up a phone and doing data collection by phone. So we moved from clipboards in the streets to phone. Then we moved to email. And in fact, when NPS first came out, there were a lot of companies saying email data collection, that's, the, you know, that's technologically too sophisticated for us. We're still using banks of phone people to collect data. And so people started moving to email and email did two things. One, it basically automated the clipboard. Most surveys today are basically an automated clipboard. You know, you, somebody gets an email, which is an invitation to a web page. The web page is the clipboard. They fill in the clipboard virtually and the data just gets written to a database. And essentially we've fully automated the clipboard. It's a brilliant automation. But the other thing that's happened as we've, as we've sort of gone as far as we can get with that technology set is we've saturated the market with surveying because if the cost of surveying drops and the marginal cost essentially today is zero, you can send a million surveys out at a marginal cost of essentially zero. The inevitable effect is you get a huge increase in the number of surveys. And the tragedy of the commons, which is one of these favorite things economists like to talk about, says an overused resource, an abundantly free resource will be overused. And the resource we're overusing is the customer's time. We assume that customers have an appetite to spend more and more time answering surveys. Of course, they don't. So the fact is now, if I went on a business trip 20 years ago, I might've had one survey. Now I'll probably get 10. Everybody from the taxi company or, or more likely Uber, through the airline, through the, the hotel, through the restaurants, are all asking me for feedback. My time allocation to give that feedback hasn't grown. In fact, it's shrunk. So I'm going to respond less. And so response rates are declining. Um, survey volumes are increasing. And this is not an inevitable path to zero, right? It doesn't take a genius to figure out that sooner or later, the response rates are going to go to essentially de minimis. Um, so in B2B, we can't really use the data well anyway. In B2C, the response rates are declining. 
So surveying as an intrusive mechanism has kind of run its course. And, you know, you can see the limitations in data quality. Uh, so we, we obviously, at Satmetrics, we had done literally a thousand enterprise implementations of survey-based platforms. So we'd done millions of surveys. And we could see this in the data very clearly. And it was also indicating that the bias that was getting introduced into the respondent base was killing the accuracy of the data as well. So everything was starting to collapse around survey-based um, CX programs. So you need to find a substitute. And the key insight that we'd observed in patterns of customer behavior was that whether or not a customer was a promoter, passive, or detractor was entirely predictable. Now, I don't mean a predictable 100%, but I mean predictable to a reasonable level of accuracy. Let me, let me boil it down to a very simple idea. Let's say I'm back in my old days at Dell Computer and a customer orders a personal computer and I tell them it'll be with them in three days. And it shows up 10 days after they place the order. Well, we'd all say, okay, that customer is less likely to be a promoter because of that event. So the question we're trying to answer is really two things. Number one, how important is shipping relative to all the other things around the computer? When they open up the box and they love the computer, is all things forgiven? Or is that shipping experience going to be important? And then what represents good? If it is, is eight days late acceptable or is 24 hours late unacceptable? If we can quantify those things, then we can adjust the probability that customer is a promoter. So we could say going into this, we had a probability of the customer being promoted, of, I don't know, 70%. After this, it drops to 30% and the probability of them being passive goes up to 80%. So we can quantify the probability that customer is one thing or another if we understand what customers value and how much they value it. And so what we've done in building a machine learning platform is we've codified that process into a series of variables that look at all the aspects of the customer journey and essentially assign them very specific types of, you could think of it as weighting, that's not technically what happens in machine learning, but it's a nice way of thinking about it. Weights of importance, weights of relative impact, uh, performance criteria. And then the machine comes out at the end of it and says, I've looked at how you treated this customer and I'll assign a probability they're a promoter. So what does that change? Well, it means that I don't need a survey response from that customer to come up with an extremely good prediction as to whether they're a promoter, passive, or detractor. It also means that I can readjust my prediction Every time the customer does something, encounters us with tech support, buys another product. So I can get this continuous, massive data set. So it's about 100 times bigger in terms of data set than your traditional relationship survey model. And it covers every single customer, every single account, and it co covers it continuously. And essentially, this solves the data problem. Now, I'm not here to tell people or your listeners that this is the only way to solve the data problem. I'm sure other people have very inventive ideas. But what I will say with complete certainty is surveys are not going to be the data source you're going to be dependent on five years from now, or you're not going to have a program. And some approach to prediction or substitute for surveys is going to become the dominant technology set. And we think machine learning is very attractive. It works very well. 
and it's and it's extremely practical. Uh, and I'll say one final thing on the topic of B2B. One of the big benefits for applying this to B2B is you predict the behavior that counts, not the individual, which has always been a problem for B2B companies. Because at the end of the day, the account behavior is what ultimately matters. It's whether the account renews, purchases more, leaves. And individuals will come and go. And there's always this question, you have the right individuals, of which we could talk a lot more. But so if you predict accounts, you end up in a, in a much better place. But I think ML is just a different computer technology when it comes down to it. It's not, um, it's not scary. It's not a black box. And you don't have to understand exactly how it works. If you're capable of running a CX program today, you understand key drivers, you understand how data gets organized for CX, you're very capable of adopting this new technology. I think that the big shift, Mark, is from people who first and foremost think of themselves as survey authors. For them, this is not really the universe we're moving into. We're all becoming data people. We're not survey people. Yeah, well, th thanks for laying that out. I, 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 even I was able to follow it. So... <laughs> Thank you. But um, I, I wanted to talk about um, the other aspects of the customer experience management and how this fits in. So you're you're not you're not saying um, the other elements of what a CX practitioner uh, needs to do, uh, which which involves then you know get the data, um, you know understanding understanding how the journey functions, um, uh, tying it to tying it to financials, which, you know, is going to be important. What's the financial? And, and maybe this is built into the AI. Like what is, what is the value of a particular client? And let me, let me stop there and let you respond to that. But we're just dealing with much better data. So I don't think you take away from people the work they need to do around journey design. I think it's important around linkage analysis. I think that's still useful. The thing is, you know, to you, there's an old cliche, everything is dialed to 11. And I think that you're just getting a vastly larger data set and a much accurate data set to play with. After identifying pattern, we are pointing to operational improvements in the business. We are persuading, we are distributing data around the company. Those things don't change. It's just the data set that changes. Excellent. And so... So this is this is fascinating, um, and I think uh, what 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 you've helped us to do was to demystify it a little bit uh, because I think it's scary for people, like I said, who aren't familiar with it. So, is there anything along those lines that that um, you'd like to add, just in terms of saying, you know, why why we shouldn't be afraid of it, and um, what what kind of comfort level should you expect? And, and how does that domain expertise manifest itself? Well, people understand the very nature of CX measurement. They understand how data gets organized along customer journeys. They understand the types of information that the company is going to want to communicate, how to persuade management teams. I would argue a typical CX professional has 90% of the skills required to do this. And then on the data technology side, I think that is uh, honestly not frightening at all. I think if, if people are frightening you with it, then I think they're trying to confuse you.
Well, excellent. Um, Richard, um, this has been a fascinating discussion. Um, I am excited for what you're doing, and I am excited that um, we're the information and the data can only help improve experiences for our customers um, and with a much more likelihood of accuracy and success. And uh, that's exciting for anyone who cares deeply because I believe, and I don't know how you feel about it, but I believe when we, when we deliver an outstanding customer experience, we change, we can change a trajectory of someone's day and, and by doing so can make the world a better place. I think what, you know, I'll say the same thing I said 20 years ago when people were arguing that, you know, the telephone's a better method for collecting data. It's like, you know, there's always going to be some people who are pushing forward and pushing the boundary and want to try new things and are ambitious. And those the people we're looking forward to join us on the journey at the end of the day. Um, you know, we, we love the early adopters. We like the people who have the courage and, and start out new ground as they did with NPS 20 years ago. And so I, I hope they take some motivation or some excitement from this because that's, that's who's become our customer base and frankly, our employee base. So um, it, it's great to see people embarking on a new adventure around CX. Yes. Well, thank you. So many gems here. So much learning uh, that I, I appreciate uh, you teaching. And uh, hey, if, if people want to get a hold of you and maybe start a conversation around this, what would be the best way? So, you know, richard.owen at ocxcognition.com. I'm there on LinkedIn as well. Just feel free to connect. Okay. Richard, thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening to the Delighted Customers Podcast. I'd like to ask you a favor. If you have enjoyed this episode or any of my other ones, hit subscribe or follow. I've got a lot of other great guests that are coming up and a lot of other great content, and I don't want you to miss anything. You can find any links or references on the show in the show notes, and you can find those on my website at empoweredcx.com. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.